Thank you for checking out our podcast here at Eastern Assembly of God Church in Baltimore, Maryland. If you'd like more information about our church, you can find us at www.easternassembly.org. That is really a great joy to be with you guys. I was telling the first service, I was scheduled to be here this time last year, and so uh, the world fell apart and we didn't get to come, but I just want to say how much I appreciate on behalf of uh, missionaries around the world, on behalf of unreached people that don't even know it yet, thank you for continuing to focus on the kingdom of God in difficult times. It's very easy during difficult times just to be self-centered and saying, nope, we got to take a season just to take care of ourselves and let's make sure we get our own finances right. Let's make sure our own family is healthy. And I just want to say thank you for being the kind of people who are willing to say the world still matters, the kingdom of God still matters. Even if we're going through difficulty, we're still going to be about kingdom business. So thank you today for continuing to engage. So it is a great privilege to be here with you for your Mission Sunday. You know, over the last uh, few weeks in India, it's, uh, it's, been a, it's been a great challenge. I started getting messages uh, last week. The uh, uh, COVID is really starting to rise in India. I got message on Friday that we have now, just this last week, six of our Assembly of God pastors in India passed away this past week. We had three pastors' wives who have passed away. Many of our district and general council leadership is sick with COVID. There's no oxygen cylinders left in India, so if you're having breathing problems, you're just finished. There's no oxygen left. So uh, this is a great tragedy right now that's happening. And sometimes in the middle of all of these kind of things, it's really hard to, uh, to find something good. God, why, why is all this happening? I was just India, in India a couple of weeks ago. And my wife called me. Uh, she's in the bathtub with my two sons because a tornado was coming through. And I could hear the sirens in the back. And she says, we, the sirens are going off. A tornado is coming through praying. I could hear it hitting. She hung up the phone. And a minute later, you get a phone call back. And, okay, so sometimes you assume, man, if we're doing God's business, then, uh, then everything's going to turn out good. How many of you ever heard this statement? The safest place in all the world is in the center of God's will. How many of you ever heard that? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Tell that to Jesus (laughs) as he's being crucified. (laughs) Tell that to Stephen as he's being stoned to death. Tell that to James as he's being beheaded. Tell that to Peter as he's in prison and later killed. It's not a safe place to walk with Jesus. It's the best place, but it ain't safe. (laughs) And as long as we seek after personal safety and personal good, the world will continue as it is full of death, full of destruction, full of pain. So how do we make the difference? Good can be really hard to find. I read this scripture not too long ago, and it was just, it used to be so clear, and then it got really confusing. You ever read a scripture like that? You read it, and it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Then later you read it, and like, that doesn't make sense. Romans chapter 8 in verse 28. And we know, everybody say, we know. (laughs) We don't think it. We don't believe it. We don't hope it. We know it. We know that all things, everybody say all things, in the middle of pandemic, in the middle of economic downturn, in the middle of riots, in the middle of discord, in the middle of pain, in the middle of sorrow, we know that 
all things, God works for the good for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. How many of you know that sometimes good can be really hard to find? Sometimes it just feels like, man, life is good. God is good. Everything's going good. And then sometimes things start to fall apart, and we find ourselves searching, God, where is this good that I've been hearing about? Where is this good that I was expecting? Because things aren't turning out like I hoped they'd turned out. So a couple of things to be able to understand this. I think, first of all, we need to go back and we need to understand something about God. That God himself... One of the characteristics he identifies himself with is this. God is good. Amen? God is good. So he identifies himself as good. And what you see is in the beginning that God created. And as he created, in this narrative you will see over and over. And God created the heavens and the earth. And God created the sun, the moon, and the stars. God created the divisions of, of, the, of the water and the, and, the, and the land. God created all of the animals. And he created all of the birds and all of the fish. He created all the vegetables and all the trees. And over and over it says, and he created it. And God saw that it was good. That everything God did was good. And then it says at the end that God created man in his own image. And then the Bible actually says, and he saw that it was very good. Man, you're not just good like a tree. You're not just good like a dog or good like a flower or good like the sun. You are very good. There's something different about you than everything else in creation. You were created in the image of God. You were created special. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're very good. You may not look good. You may not smell good, but you're still very good. So whatever anybody else says, I can tell you God said you're very good. You were created special. And there was only one thing in all of creation when God created that the Bible does not say it was good. You know what that thing was? He said, God created man, and he saw that it was not good that man was alone. We used to sing this song, He's All I Need, uh, but I can just tell you that song's not true. Jesus is not all you need. If uh, you don't have air today, you're going to die because Jesus created you in such a way that you need air. (laughs) Jesus created you in such a way that if you don't drink water, you're going to die. Jesus created you in such a way that if you don't eat, you're going to die. And Jesus created you in such a way that you need me and I need you. We need each other. God created us to literally need one another. It's not good for people to be alone. And that's one of the things you learn during lockdowns is that when you're alone and you're isolated, man, just something starts happening in your brain and things start to misfire. And suicide rates around the world are at an all-time high. Why? Because it is not good for people to be alone. And I'm not telling you to go out and break protocol. What I am telling you, you got to find a way, even in the darkest time, to find a way to communicate and be in connection with people. I don't care if it's through Zoom or whatever you're doing. If you're sitting six feet apart in a park, whatever you're doing, but don't be alone. It is not good for people to be alone. It's not a good thing. So God created us to have relationship with Him and to have relationship with one another. And without those two relationships, the world falls apart. 
But in order for that to happen, God had to introduce something incredibly dangerous into creation. It's something, he, he didn't introduce it into, into any of the wildlife. He didn't introduce this thing into animals and fish and birds. He didn't give this thing to plants. But because we were created in the image of God, and because God is good, and because God is love, God gave us something he did not give any of the other creation. You know what that is? Freedom. God gave you freedom. Because a good, loving God cannot truly love without giving you freedom. And anybody that has ever given freedom knows that freedom is dangerous. I'll never forget the first time that I put car keys into the hands of my 16-year-old son. Man, that freedom is dangerous. <laughs> I mean, it's the freedom that I'm giving him that now I don't have to go to the grocery store every time for my wife. Now I can say, hey, you go get the milk. <laughs> it's, it's freedom is good, but then freedom's also bad when 2 o'clock in the morning you had not come home yet. <laughs> Because you can use freedom for really good things, and you can use freedom for really bad things. And because of freedom, we have a Mother Teresa. Because of freedom, we have a Mahatma Gandhi. Because of freedom, we have a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We have incredible people who use freedom in a way to better the people around them. But because of freedom, we also have Hitler. We also have Stalin. We also have incredibly terrible people who use the freedom God gave for evil. But you see, love does not control. You know, control, there, there's, you don't love someone if you control them, if you force them. Love is about freedom. And because God is a God of love and a God who is good, a part of the goodness of creation is that God gave us freedom. But that freedom was a very dangerous thing. Because very quickly, the man and woman that God created made a decision we don't need God. You see, that was the lie of the enemy. You can become God for yourself. You can make your own rules. You can make your own path. You can follow your own truth. You don't need anybody else telling you what to do. You can be a God to yourself. And they ate of the tree they were told not to eat from. And immediately, what do you find? They start to hide. They're hiding from one another. They're hiding from God. Because immediately, the first effect of sin is not death. The first effect of sin is separation. And all of a sudden, Adam and Eve, who were created for a purpose just to walk with God, you see this, that they were created for one purpose, that God, it said, in the cool of the evening would come down and he would walk with them through the garden. You were created just for the purpose of walking together with God. That's why you were created. That's why you're here today. Every one of us in this room were created to have fellowship with one another and to have fellowship with God. That's why we were created. But sin broke that and brought separation. And we're no longer together. And so you see man and woman are put out from the garden. And what you see is this. As soon as the relationship with God was broken, every relationship in their life started to break down. So now you have Cain killing his brother Abel. And God comes and says, where is your brother? God's not asking because he doesn't know. God never asks questions for knowledge because all knowledge resides in God. God is simply asking so that Cain is forced to reveal the intent of his heart. 
Cain, where's your brother? How many of you remember Cain's reply? Am I my brother's keeper? Do you see what separation from God led to? It led to Cain believing I'm no longer responsible for him. I'm just responsible for me. See, this is the path of sin to lead us to believe that we are not responsible for one another. I mean, I'm just responsible to take care of me. I got a wife, I got kids, and as long as I'm taking care of them, I'm good. My neighbor's not my responsibility. They got to take care of themselves. My city's not my responsibility. They, they have to take care of themselves. People in India, I'm, I'm not from there. It's not my people. It's not my language. You see, sin leads us to believe that somehow we are not connected together. Sin leads to separation. It leads to division. And all of the division and pain in this world was created because people are not in right relationship with God. They cannot be in right relationship with one another. And so you have brother killing brother. You have family fighting his family. You have city fighting his city. You have nation fighting his nation. That is the history of the Bible. That is the history of the world that is still ongoing. That because people are not in right relationship with God, they find ways to divide among themselves. So we're constantly finding ways. I'm a Jew. He's a Gentile. I'm slave. He's free. I speak this language. They speak that language. I'm from this country. They're from that country. We find ways to feel like we're not responsible for one another. But then Jesus came. And when Jesus came, the Bible tells us he came down to tear down the wall of partition. That Jesus came to bring us back into right relationship with God. And I want you to see this, how clear this is in the Bible. That as soon as people came into right relationship with God, it started to affect the relationships of their life. In Acts chapter 2, as soon as the Spirit of God was poured out on them, in Acts chapter 2, 42, it says they started to gather together every day. They started praying together, studying the Bible together, worshiping together, breaking bread together. But the focus of the Scripture was this. There was not one needy person among them because no one considered anything they had as their own. They took care of one another. They started with a new reality that because I'm in right relationship with God, I am also in right relationship with you, and I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. I am responsible for the Jew and the Gentile. I am responsible for the slave and the free. I am responsible for the male and the female. I am responsible to all people because I'm in right relationship with God. That relationship should affect every relationship of my life. And it causes us to lift up our eyes and to think differently about who am I responsible for. When I was living in Laos, I had this neighbor, and, uh, and I, I noticed he was sick. And, uh, but in Laos, it's a communist country. You can't just openly do anything. And so I, I wanted to help him, but I, but I also wanted to do it in such a way that, that he retained dignity. I didn't want to go to him and say, hey, you're poor. You can't help yourself. I'll help you. So I went to him one day. My son was sick. And I said, hey, listen, my son is sick, and I need to go to the hospital, and I don't know how to navigate the hospital here. I mean, our hospital was a little thing with chicken wire for windows, and everybody just comes in and out. And, you know, so I said, I don't know how to navigate the hospital. Can you help me to go to the hospital and get my son checked out? And he said, oh, sure, I'll go with you. So 
So he goes with me, and he's like very proud because I'm helping my neighbor, and he's happy. And after finish, I said to him, I said, hey, as long as we're here, uh, you've been sick. Why don't we get you a checkup? As long as we're here. You've helped me. You've blessed me. I want to bless you in return. So, so he gets a checkup, and he, they do a little blood work on him. said, come back. A few days later, we come back, and the doctor's sitting there, and he's got these reports, and he looks at him, looks at him, looks at me, and he said, nothing I can do. Take him home and let him die. And that was just like stunned. I said, what? I said, I can't do that. What do you, what do you mean take him home and let him die? you got to give me more information. He said, well, the tests show that uh, he's, uh, his, he's in the early stage of kidney failure. His kidneys are failing. And the fact is, this man's a poor man. We have no hospitals in our country that could treat him. The closest hospitals in Thailand, that's about a 12-hour drive from him. This man has no car. This man has no money. There's no reason for me to give him false hope. Better for him to die in peace with his family at home than to send him off to do something that he can't afford. And so I said, well, well, how much money are we talking about? And he gave me a figure. He said, well, the starting, and it was like 20000 U.S. dollars. I was like, man, I don't have $20,000. So I said, man, so, I, so he get in the car, and we're driving home. We're kind of in silence now. He's just been told he's going to die, and, and I'm just stunned. And so we get, we get to our little, little area where we live. We lived on this little dirt lane, and he lived on one side, and I lived on the other. And so we get there, and I park the car. And I said to him, I said, Mr. Oat, I said, man, I'm so sorry. I said, but you know I follow Jesus. And, uh, and I believe Jesus is a healer. So I want you to know every night from here on, I'm going to be praying that God's going to heal you. And right there I prayed for him. I said, you can be assured. I'm going to be praying. I'm going to believe with you for God. I don't have the money, but I'm going to pray with you that God's going to do something. That night I'm up in my bed. I'm reading a book, and I fell asleep. <laughs> a few minutes later I was like, oh. I woke up, and I thought, man, I promised him I'd pray. And it's first night, and I've already forgot. So, so I get down beside the bed because I thought, this is a serious one. I get down beside my bed, and I start to pray, God, would you please heal my neighbor, Mr. Oat? And as soon as I said it, I, I heard the voice of the Lord in my head. This has rarely happened to me. One of the few times but I heard the voice of the Lord in my head. And I heard the Spirit ask me, what would you do if he was your father? What would you do if he was your father? And I thought to myself, I started thinking, I said, man, if he's my father, I wouldn't let him die. I mean, if there's a small chance of him living, I'd take a loan. I'd mortgage the house. I'd sell the car. I'd borrow money from here and there. I'd do whatever I could. If there was any chance my father could live, I'd I'd do whatever I had to do. And I just felt the Spirit speak to me and say, whatever you do for your father, do it for him. So the next day, I get up, and I walk over to his house. I knock on the door, and I go, and I sit beside him. He's laying in the bed. I said, Mr. Oat, I said, I didn't treat you right yesterday. I said, you've been like family to me, and uh, you've always treated me like family. You've helped me since I've come to the village, and uh, I can't in good conscience just let you die. So I said, so get ready. Tomorrow we're going to the hospital. We're going to drive to Thailand. We're going to figure this thing out. So the next day, we got in the car. We drive to Thailand. It started a procedure that over the next few years... Uh, once a month, we had to drive to Thailand for dialysis and other things and medication and doing things going back and forth. And I maxed out all my credit cards and took out some loans and uh, borrowed some money for some people and, uh, and, uh, yeah, and just really wrecked my finances. Dave Ramsey would have been very upset with me. <laughs> just wrecked my finances. Uh, two years in, 
we felt like the Lord was leading us to go back to India. So I had one of my Lao friends, I brought him around and introduced him. And, and so they you know, said, hey, listen, I'm going to keep sending money to do what we got to do. But my friend's going to take you to the hospital. He'll take care of you. He'll make sure you're taken care of. The next day, I'm getting in the truck to leave. I go in the morning. I'm getting in my truck to go to the airport. And one of the kids from the village comes and gets me and says, uh, hey, Mr. Holt wants to meet you before you leave. And I'd just been with him the night before. And I go to his house. And I walk in. And he looks at me. And he says, I want you to know you're my family. You're my son. And because you're my family, your God is my God. I want to follow Jesus. And his wife stepped around the corner and said, you're my son too. I want to follow Jesus. And that day they called on the name of the Lord. This has been now 12 years. He's still alive today. They have a church in their house today. Living for Jesus simply because of an idea to treat people like family. You see, the fact is, I have three grown children. And when my children are struggling, nobody ever has to remind me to pray. Nobody has to send me a text message saying, hey, uh, Josiah's having a hard time today. You need to pray for him. I find myself, I can't go to sleep at night. How many of you ever been there? I mean, like I'm, I'm sitting around at night. In the middle of the night, I just wake up sometime, and I'm like, man, what's going to happen to my son? I, and I start praying for my son. I wake up in the morning. It's the first thing on my mind when I wake up, and it's the last thing on my mind when I go to bed because he's family, because I love him. The problem we have today, one-third of humanity has yet to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ with nobody praying for them because they're nobody's family. They're nobody's responsibility. It's not my responsibility. So what you may say is, man, you can't do that for everybody. My retort to you is start with somebody. Find somebody in your life who is desperate without Jesus and make them your family. And determine, I'm going to be my brother's keeper. I'm going to be my sister's keeper. Whatever I do for my son, I'm going to do it for you. Whatever I do for my father, I'm going to do it for you. Whatever I do for my sister and mother, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going, to, I'm going to treat you like family. And I am convinced the world is in the position it's in because this good that God created for us to live as a community that cares and is in right relationship with one another, we are not living out that ideal. So why is this good so hard to find? I mean, it should be easy with so many of us who know Jesus. Good should be easy to find. But why is it so hard? You know, I found out after I got saved. I got saved when I was 20. I was an alcoholic and uh, came from a broken home. My mom left when I was a teenager. And then my father left uh, a few months after my dad left. And, uh, and I was just alone. And I was in pain. And I just uh, had so much anger and rage. I turned to violence. I turned to alcohol, turned to drugs, ended up in and out of, uh, in and out of police trouble. And uh, then when I was 20 years old, Jesus met me. And he uh, changed my life. He gave me hope. He gave me purpose. He changed my life. And uh, so I made this decision. Man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Jesus. I'm going to go after Jesus with everything in my life. I just want Jesus to be glorified. Now, I was telling first service, you know, uh, I don't even understand the mentality of people who pray things like, 
God, please don't send me to India. God, please don't make me go to Africa. God, please don't make me preach. When I got saved, I'm convinced I'm in India because all the qualified people put their hands down. (laughs) And I was in the back saying, ooh, pick me. (laughs) Can I do something? Is there anything I could do? Is there any way I could be involved? So I get saved, and I start reading the Bible for the first time. I started in Genesis, and I get to the story of Joseph, and I found out, man, I was named after somebody in the Bible. That may be news to some of you. I didn't know that. I was like, wow, this is amazing. My parents named me after, I don't even think they knew it. They named me after somebody in the Bible, so it was really good. So I've always loved the story of Joseph. And if there was ever anybody who would have found it hard to find good, it would have been Joseph. I mean, here's Joseph. He's got dreams. He's the most favored of his father's son. And yet, all of that was setting him up for a life of hardship. So here's Joseph. One day, his father says, I want you to go check on your brothers. They're out with the sheep. There's 10 of them. They're out with the sheep. So he sends them out to check on him. He's on his way. The brothers see him and said, man, this guy's always dreaming, telling us he's going to be a ruler, telling us how big he's going to be. Why don't we just kill him and let's see what happens to all those dreams. So as soon as Joseph comes, man, they beat the tar out of him. They leave him bloody, and then they throw him into the bottom of this pit. And then they're getting ready to kill him. But then along, some slave traders come. And they decide, man, killing him won't profit us. Why don't we sell him? Let's at least make some money off this deal. And so they sell him. Let me tell you, when you've been beaten by your own flesh and blood, when you've been thrown into a pit and sold into slavery, good can be really hard to find. Can somebody say amen? You think you had a rough year. (laughs) So now here's Joseph. He gets sold in the house of this man named Potiphar. But Joseph kept his integrity. He didn't lose faith. He just held on and said, I don't know what's happening, but I'm just going to continue to be the man I am. I'm going to continue to live for God. And because of that, he became elevated and he became the head of all the slaves, the head of all the servants. Then one day, the wife of Potiphar, she tries to seduce him. He's a handsome young man. She tries to seduce him. He refuses and runs away. And then she accuses him of trying to molest her. And now he's thrown into prison. Beaten, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, falsely accused, and thrown into prison. Sometimes good can be really hard to find. (laughs) Now he's in prison. Even in the prison, he's kept his integrity. He was faithful. And the head of the prison made him in charge of all the other prisoners. One day in the prison, these uh, two people that used to be servants of the king, they get thrown in jail because they've displeased the king. Both of them have a dream. And when Joseph hears this, I want you to hear the audacity of this. Joseph hears they have dreams, and Joseph says... I serve a God who answers, who knows dreams. Just tell me what it is. I'll tell you what it is. That's a lot of confidence for a man who's sitting in prison. (laughs) So, hey, if your God's so good, why are you sitting here in prison? If if your God is so great, then why did he allow you to get beaten up and sold into slavery? What are you talking about, your God? But he had this confidence, not in his situation, but in God. I'm going to trust that God's good even when I can't see it. And so he tells them their dreams. One of them, he says, man, I hate to tell you this, but the dream you have 
you're, you're going to be dead. And he told the other one, the dream you had, you're going to be restored to the king. And all he asked is, when you're restored, just don't forget me. And it came about just like he said. But what happened to Joseph? He was forgotten. And let me tell you, out of everything in life, there is nothing worse than being forgotten. I mean, you can deal with prison if you know there's somebody on the outside who cares about you and thinks about you. You can deal with sickness as long as you know there's people who care about you and love you. But when you get to a place when you feel like nobody cares, nobody remembers, I am forgotten, that's kind of end of the rope. So Joseph has been beaten, he's been thrown into a pit, he's been sold into slavery, he's been falsely accused, he's been thrown into prison and forgotten. But Joseph continues to trust in the Lord. Then one day, the king himself has a dream. And finally, this servant remembers, and he says, Hey, I, hate, I, I should have told you this sooner, but there's a man I met in prison, and he serves a God who can, who can interpret dreams. And they go to get Joseph, and I want you to see what it was like when they found him. They said, No, we can't take him to the king like this. He's got a scraggly beard. He hadn't had a haircut in years. He hadn't had a bath in years. He's got his clothes are falling off. we got to dress him up and get him right. I mean, he's at the end. He is, he's not. I, I think sometimes we think on our journey with the Lord, we're just this always kind of triumphant and always looking good. And we forget when Paul talks about his journey of beaten and bloody and bruised. I mean, when we come into the kingdom, if you get to the kingdom without bruises, you didn't do it right. If you enter into eternity without any cuts, without any bruises, without any accusations, without any persecution, you probably didn't do it right. Because the Bible said, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you're doing it right, it's not going to be easy. And so now Joseph comes before the king. He interprets the dream. The dream was there's going to be seven years of plenty. There's going to be a seven-year famine. You better get ready for it. And the king says, who else could help us better than you, Joseph? We want you to be the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. I want you to take over, and I want you to see this. God loved Egypt so much that he allowed Joseph to be beaten and thrown into a pit. He loved the nations around Egypt so much. He loved Ethiopia. He loved Libya. He loved Morocco. He loved Saudi Arabia. He loved Jordan and Syria. He loved those nations so much that he allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery and thrown into a prison. God loved Israel so much that he allowed Joseph to go through hardship, to be in the right place at the right time, that the world would be saved. And literally, literally, nations were saved because of Joseph. Saved because of Joseph. You see, good is hard to find because we assume good is just about me. Good is hard to find because we assume good is my health. Good is my wealth. Good is I have a nice house to live in. Good is I have a conflict-free existence. I, I live in a nice little bubble of ease. Good is all about what's happening in my life. And as long as you live for that good, you will never see the greater good of God using us to bring salvation to others. 
You see, Joseph held firm to an idea. God, what's happening in my life, it doesn't feel good, it doesn't look good, but I'm going to trust that your ways are higher than my ways. I'm going to follow you in the midst of darkness so that others can receive light. And I want you to see this. One day then, the brothers of Joseph come to be saved. Ten of his brothers, these people that beat him and threw him in a pit, they show up. And uh, because now God is using Joseph to make sure Israel is fed, to make sure Israel doesn't die in the midst of this famine. So Israel shows up and they need help. And the brothers then, one day, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Can you imagine what's going on in these guys' head? Man, if I was you, can you imagine? I mean, if I was you, if I'm getting to stand here and now give judgment on these 10 people that just beat me, threw me into a prison, sold me into slavery, caused all this tragedy in my life, man, I'm going to tell you, it's going to come down fire and fury 10 times greater. And so these brothers are terrified. Man, Joseph is about to wipe us out. They are terrified. Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, to his brothers, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Let me tell you, the enemy means to steal, to kill, and destroy your life. Make no doubt about it that in this sinful world, there are Cains out there looking to kill Abel's. In this sinful world, there are people that would seek to destroy your life. There are plenty of opportunities. There are people out there today who are drinking, and they're going to be driving, and somebody, innocent person, is going to get caught up in the fury of that. There are innocent people that are suffering all the time. There is all of this evil that is lined against us and meant against us. But what we know, not think, not believe, not hope, is what we know is that God will work all things for the good. He'll bring good out of the darkest situation. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And listen to the good Joseph is talking about. He's not talking about his health. By now, the beatings, the bruising, the pit, the prison, those things could not have made it easy on his bones. Joseph is not describing his physical life right now. I'm, I'm sure he was a broken man. He was hurt. He was wounded. There were mental scars. You don't go through those things without carrying the mental scars for the rest of your life. Joseph is not describing a good that is personal. But he says this, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people. In order to bring it about, it is this day to save many people. You see, we often miss good because we think good is just about me. Let me tell you, God saved you and created you for something greater than personal ambition. There, there's a deeper purpose. There's more to life. Sometimes we love to think to ourselves that, Man, I'm a child of God. How many of you, when you just, just saying that, just kind of brings a smile to your face? Woo, I'm a son of God. I am the daughter of God. Boy, that just brings a smile. But then we remember how God treated his son. Ooh, and maybe that's not as much of a happy thought as I thought it was. <laughs> because God so loved the world that he gave 
his only son to die to pay the price to give up his own good so that others could experience good. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, he, he goes on this theme, the famous chapter of the humble servant. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests. I, I would even say to you, you could put in their good. Not, not only looking for your own good, but each of you to the interest or the good of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What was the mindset of Christ Jesus? It was the mindset of, I'm willing to lay aside my good. I'm willing to lay aside all of the glories of heaven, all of what is there in heaven. I'm willing to lay aside that place where I've never been tired, I've never been hungry, I've never been thirsty, I've never been persecuted, I've never experienced pain. I'm willing to lay aside that place to come down here to this earth to experience pain with you, to experience thirst and hunger and experience pain with you so that you can experience life. That is the ultimate good. The cross is the symbol of God's greatest good. It is torture, it is terror, it is pain that leads to life. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. The Assemblies of God in India was started uh, back uh, right after the Pentecostal outpouring in uh, 1914, around that time when the, the Spirit was poured out, there were uh, missionaries who were home on furlough during that time from another organization. They were filled with the Spirit. They were thrown out of their organization. They joined the Assemblies of God, and they came back to India. And uh, soon after that, around 1916, Christian and Violet Schoonmaker founded the Assemblies of God of India. They led some pastors, some people to the Lord. They became pastors. There were some other missionaries. They joined in, and they formed the Assemblies of God of India back around 1916. And uh, three months after forming the Assemblies of God of India, Christian Schoonmaker, uh, he contracted a disease, smallpox, and uh, three months later, he was dead. The Assemblies of God leadership of India and uh, America sent a message to Violet. Violet Schoonmaker at that time had six children, aged from nine to just a few months old. She just had a baby while her husband was pregnant. The youngest of their children, their daughter, had uh, never met their father. And they sent a letter to Violet and said, you know, after you're recovered and everything is good, it's going to take a three-month boat ride back home, but, but you need to come home now. There's no way you can live on the field and raise six children as a single widow. And she was living out in a village in the middle of nowhere. And Violet replied with a telegram, one line, my call did not die with my husband. And she spent the next 32 years of her life serving the Lord in India. All six of her children became missionaries to India. One of her children, her oldest named Paul, one day he got opportunity to go and preach in Iran. He was in Iran. This was back in the, in the late 50s, early 60s. He was, he was in Iran, preaching in Iran. He contracted hepatitis. There was a, a young missionary who just got to the field. His name was Mark Bliss. He had just got to the field, 
And the missionary fellowship said, hey, why don't you go and look in on uh, uh, Brother Schoonmaker, make sure he's okay. And he goes to the hospital room, and he said when he went in, he could see something wasn't right. He was dying. And he's sitting there with Paul Schoonmaker. He's a brand-new missionary. And here's Paul Schoonmaker, who uh, his father died when he was nine years old. His mother raised him as a single missionary. He knew what sacrifice was all about. He knew what pain. He knew what it was to put the good of others above his own good. And laying in that hospital bed, Mark asked him, he said, is there anything I can do for you? And he said, I just want to sing one more song. And he started singing, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. And that song ends, the very last part of the chorus says, if ever I love thee, my Jesus is now right now, laying in a hospital bed in Iran, separated from my family for the cause of Christ. Jesus, if ever I love you, I love you now more than ever. And those were the last words that ever came out of his mouth, and he passed away. Mark Bliss, it impacted his life, just like the life of Violet, his mother, impacted Paul's life. It was passed on. And so now, Mark Bliss starts serving the Lord. He leads a young man to the Lord. He and this young man go out. They both had young sons. They go out to preach one day in Iran. And while they're driving, a tractor pulls in front of them. There's an accident, and both of their sons died in the accident. According to Sharia law, it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, blood for blood. So they go to court. The judge in the court says, you know, you two men, your sons are dead. This farmer caused the death of your sons, so you get to play sentence. If you demand his life, he will be executed today. And Mark Bliss and Hosepian Hike, who was the young pastor with him, stood up and said, we are servants of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave his life for us. He died for us. We know this was an accident. We return this man's life back to him. Go in peace. May you find peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. That man went back to his village. He was so overwhelmed by this act. He told the people, we've never seen anything like this. They called and asked him to come to the village. They preached. There was a movement. The whole village came to the Lord. Whole village came to the Lord. Today, Iran, the fastest growing church in all the world today is in Iran. The church is growing faster than anywhere else in the world. There have been over 5 million Iranians have come to the Lord just in the last few years. People are turning in mass. Why? Because of a people who put the good of the kingdom above their own good. In India today, while we're sitting here, we have over 7,000 churches across India. Over a million people are meeting in those churches when, when they're open. We have over 20,000 house churches across India today because of people like Violet Schoonmaker who made a determination to not live for her own good, but to live of the good of the kingdom. When I got saved, my pastor told me, he said, boy, God's got a call on your life. You need to go to Bible school. And uh, I wasn't raised in church, so I didn't know what any of that meant. I said, what in the world does that mean? God's got a call on your life. And he said, well, it means God's called you to preach. And I said, well, that's great. What do I do about it? He said, you need to go to Bible school. I said, what's a Bible school? I've never heard of that. And he said, well, that's where you go. They teach you the Bible and teach you how to preach. I said, great. So he puts me in the church van, takes me to Bible school. And my first year in Bible school, I've got this retired missionary to India. And she's telling me stories about India, a billion people who've never heard the gospel, 500,000 villages where there's not one church. 
She had been a missionary. She was in her 70s when I met her. She had been a missionary in India for, for, for ages, you know, for her whole life. She was born there, raised there, served there, and came back to retire with her husband. She's in her 70s teaching a class. And after class, I go up to her, and I just said, something's wrong here. Somebody needs to do something about this. She said, I agree with you. Somebody needs to do something about it. I said, well, how about me? I'm ready to go. Send me. She said, I don't have any money. I said, introduce me to somebody money. There was another missionary on campus named David Grant. He helped me buy a ticket, and I've been in India ever since. And that wonderful woman of God who inspired me to go to India was the sixth child of Christian Schoonmaker, born to a father she never met, a mother who served as a widow on the field raising six kids faithfully, And she carried that passion and passed that passion on to me. So that one day, when uh, my third son was born, my third son was born, and we got the report, your son only has one kidney. He only has one kidney. It's okay, you can live with one kidney, but uh, we need to examine him and keep him under observation. You know, I should be able to trust the Lord. I've seen miracles in our family. We've had uh, our second son had uh, severe health challenges. We've seen the Lord provide. Our first son, the doctors had told us that uh, he probably wouldn't survive. I saw him survive. But one thing you learn about life is this. Yesterday's victories don't prepare you for today's battles. That's why the children of Israel were always struggling. (laughs) I mean, God opens the sea. Oh, God is so good. Why'd you bring us here to die? We don't have water. God brings water out of a rock. Whoa, God, you're so good. We don't have any food. God, why did you bring us here to die? God brings food. Now we're thirsty again. We just ate the food. Now that made us thirsty. Why did you bring us here to die? Because yesterday's battles don't prepare you. Yesterday's victories don't prepare you for today's battle. Every battle's a new one. I should have known. Man, God's going to provide. But we struggle. And the doctor said, you know what, he can survive with one kidney, but we really don't know why the other kidney didn't form. He's going to need to be on medication. We're going to need to do regular checkups on him. And at that time, we were moving up into this far hill area of India. And the doctor said, hey, my advice to you is take a couple years to take care of your son. And all I could think about was that God so loved the world, God so loved me, that he gave his son. All I could think about was people like Violet Schoonmaker who put her family in danger in order to continue, to put the good of others above their own good. And so after months of prayer, we decided, no, Lord, you called us. And uh, we don't understand how you're going to do it. We don't understand what's going to happen, but we're going to trust you. And at that time, we moved up into a region far in the north of India, there had not been a known person come to the Lord in 150 years. There had not been one person come to the Lord. Moravian missionaries had gone to this area back in the 1800s. They saw three people come to the Lord. There had been nobody come to the Lord since. And I can tell you today in that region, we have dozens of Buddhist monks who have come to faith who are serving the Lord today. We have former Muslims who are pastoring today. God is doing great things because if you live for the good of others, people live. But not only that, 
Two years into the journey, we had to go out and get our visa renewed. So we went to Thailand to a hospital and to get our visa renewed. And I took my son into the doctor. I showed him all the old x-rays and I said, this is what the doctor said. And we do love our son and want the best. Would you check him out? Just make sure everything's okay. So he orders some exams. And so we go in for an x-ray. He comes back. He looks at him and said, oh, this doesn't look right. And now we're scared. And he's ordered him for an ultrasound. He went and got an ultrasound. Comes back and he said, oh, you know, this, there's, something's not right here. And then he orders us for an MRI. And we do an MRI. Man, now by, by this time we're terrified. Like, have we destroyed our son's future? And finally, at the end of all this, the doctor sits in front of us. He drops all the results in front of us and says, I don't know what to tell you, but your son has two kidneys now. I want to tell you, the best thing you can do for your wife, the best thing you can do for your children is to live for the good of the kingdom. Putting yourself at the center of the universe is in nobody's best interest. Long as we do that, there's a reason. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all people. 2,000 years later, one-third of humanity has yet to be engaged because we live for our own good. My question to you is, whose good are you living for? Right now in India, while we're sitting here enjoying the presence of the Lord, all I've thought about all morning is six widows. Six widows. We have six pastors who passed away. The children who are today without a father. Am I my sister's keeper? Am I responsible? All I can think about is these three pastors' wives that died. Their children, how they feel, the husbands. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible? In Yemen, there has been a civil war that's been going on for years. Thousands of people are dying in Yemen. We, we don't know them. We don't know their language. Am I Yemen's keeper? Am I responsible? Am I responsible for the world? And I think Jesus would say to you, yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. The reason we are here this week is to recommit ourselves to say we're responsible for the world hearing the name of Jesus. We're responsible to bring hope and life. We're responsible for those that have been broken, that there is not one needy person among them. That's, that's part of our responsibility to say those children, we're going to make sure we've sent word to the church. Every one of those children will be educated and go to college so they can take care of their mothers. We're going to do it. We're going to make sure that they have houses to stay in, that they're not going to be destitute. We're going to make sure that believers in India who are struggling through this, that we're going to stand with them. We have had the privilege since May. We found out over 1,500 pastors across India literally had gone weeks without food. Because in most of our village churches in India, the way they survive is every Sunday people come to church, they give a little bit of money, they give a little bit of rice, they give a little vegetable that gives them enough for the week, and they come back and do it again next Sunday. Within three weeks of lockdown, people were destitute. They had no access. And literally, we talked to a pastor that he said, literally, I'm so glad you called. This is my last piece of bread, and I was just giving it to my kids. And we've been able to since May, provide for over 1,500 pastors to make sure no children goes to bed hungry. Because we are our brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. 
There's no us and them. We are all a part of the kingdom together. So the question is today, whose good are you living for? Whose good are you living for? As long as we live for our own good, the world will continue as it is. But I believe it's time to lift up our eyes and make a determination. I will live for the good of others. I will find good by living for others, not for myself. Would you just lift both your hands and surrender today? Lord Jesus, I know this word is a, is a hard thing. It's a bruising thing on us. It's not something we can do in our own nature. It's, it's not in our nature to put others ahead of ourselves. It's not in our nature to think of the good of other families even before we think of our own family. That's, that's just not down in our DNA. But Jesus, I thank you for grace. I thank you for the grace that comes from you, that, Lord Jesus, you did not come to make us a little bit better than we are. You came to transform us into the new humanity, going back to a people created good in your image with a freedom to do what is good, with a freedom to do what is right, with a freedom to live for others. And so, Lord, we thank you for your spirit that lives in us. And I pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to think of others. I pray for everyone in this room. I pray that it would start right here in their own communities. Help us to see the people around us that we can treat like family. Help us to see people that we can adopt into our life, hurting, broken people around us, the hungry, the broken, the wounded, that we can invite in and say, yes, I'm my brother's keeper. I'm my sister's keeper. You're a part of my family now, and you're going to be taken care of. And Lord, we're going to do that right here. But Lord, we also pray for places like Yemen where there's a civil war and there's not one church. There's nobody to be a neighbor to them there. So Lord, we offer ourselves to go and be that neighbor. We offer ourselves to, to invest, to send others who are willing Right now, I thank you, Lord, that we have a team that is willing right now and ready, getting ready to move into Yemen. And we're thankful that we can partner with such people. We're thankful that we can partner with pastors in India living on the front lines and living for you and showing your grace. So, Lord, if you send us, we want to go. We're willing to go. If you don't send us, help us, Lord, to be able to send somebody else. Lord, we just want to be a part of that great mission. Lord, we know we'll be able to do none of those things as long as we put ourselves first. So, Lord, help us to live for the good of others. Help us to see your good. Many people being saved. I pray that the outflow of every life in here would be that because they live for you, many people were saved. Because they gave, many people were saved. Because they prayed, many people were saved. Because they invited their neighbor into their home, many people were saved. We want to be used for something greater than a house and a car and money. We want to be used for the good of your kingdom. So, Lord, we offer ourselves to you today. Give us your grace to do it, we pray. In Jesus' name.